Today we continue our summer series on untold heroes and little-known history. Our focus this episode is on Alexander Hamilton, one of America's founding fathers, and how he met his demise. Many people know of the duel that ended his life, but what happened in those final hours? Today we'll find out. I'm Robert Child, and that's next. And this is Point of the Spear. We have a blockbuster, new 15-part weekly series coming up on Point of the Spear, starting July 19th, D-Day in 90 minutes. Here's a sample. The southeastern tip of England is less than 300 miles from the Rhine-Ruhr district. The shortest path to victory lay through France, and Hitler knew it. In a November 1943 Führer directive, he wrote, but now a greater danger appears in the west, an Anglo-Saxon landing, in the east, the vast extent of the territory makes it possible for us to lose ground, even on a large scale, without a fatal blow being dealt to the nervous system of Germany. It is very different in the west. Everything indicates that the enemy will launch an attack against the western front in the spring. I can therefore no longer take responsibility for further weakening the west, for it is here that the enemy must and will attack, that the decisive battle against the landing forces will be fought. The 15-part comprehensive series will release every Wednesday morning starting July 19th and run through the end of October. The podcast series will cover the Normandy invasion from virtually every angle and attempt to leave no stone unturned. I hope you can join us for our new weekly series, D-Day in 90 Minutes, only on Point of the Spear. Until Lin-Manuel Miranda's smash Broadway musical, Hamilton, the youngest of America's founding fathers, had been better known for the way he met his demise, a duel with despised arch-rival Aaron Burr. It has become the most famous duel in American history. But what happened afterward might surprise you. And the duel itself has been mired in controversy for more than 200 years. Alexander Hamilton was born in Charlestown, Nevis, an island in the Caribbean on the 11th of January, 1755, although some scholars claim it was 1757. He and his older brother James were raised by their mother, the former Rachel Fawcett Levine, who married their father, James Hamilton. James, a Scottish peddler, abandoned the family in 1765. A year later, young Alex went to work to help support the family. He began as a clerk in the counting-house of two New York merchants who had recently established themselves at St. Croix. By 1772, his industry, keen mind, and engaging manner had progressed him from bookkeeper to manager. The following year, funds were raised to send him to a preparatory school in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, and in the fall of 1773 he entered King's College in New York, which later became Columbia. Those studies were interrupted by the brewing revolt against Great Britain and subsequent calls for independence from the mother country. Hamilton took up arms in March 1776 and was commissioned a captain in the provincial artillery through the influence of well-placed friends. He organized his own independent cannon company and came to the attention of General George Washington at the Battle of Trenton in December 1776, 
when he demonstrated conspicuous bravery. In February 1777, Washington invited him to become an aide-de-camp with the rank of lieutenant colonel. In his four years on Washington's staff, he grew close to the general and was entrusted with his correspondence. He was sent on important military missions and became a liaison officer between Washington and the French generals and admirals, thanks to his fluent command of French. Throughout the war, however, the ambitious Hamilton longed for a field command where he could, quote, make a name for himself, unquote. Washington had always resisted granting this request. Hamilton and his sharp mind were much more needed at headquarters as the commanding general had come to rely on the young aide-de-camp with each passing day. Finally frustrated after an argument regarding his duties with Washington in February 1781, Hamilton left the army to brood and plan his next moves. When Hamilton got wind of the Continental Army's push to Yorktown, he peppered Washington with petitions to return, but only in a field command. Washington finally relented and granted the young officer his wish, and Alexander Hamilton led the triumphant final charge in the American victory over the British at Yorktown, ending the war. Washington and Hamilton went their separate ways after the Revolution, until both were drawn into the political fray to help establish the new nation. After Washington was unanimously elected the first U.S. president in 1789, he made Hamilton his first cabinet selection as Secretary of the Treasury. Hamilton, a devout Federalist, devised an ingenious plan to tie the cash-strapped state's fortunes to those of the national government by federal payment of all the state's debts. Hamilton was unrelenting in his approach to almost all legislative matters, and his tendency to hurl derogatory attacks against political rivals created many enemies. One of those enemies was the fast-rising political star Aaron Burr. Hamilton believed Burr was an unprincipled man, willing to shift his political beliefs on a whim to advance his career. This approach contrasted sharply with the politically principled Hamilton. Despite a mistrust of Thomas Jefferson, Hamilton threw his support behind him in his presidential election of 1800, which ended in a tie. Jefferson's opponent was Aaron Burr. Hamilton's support of Jefferson infuriated Burr, who had to settle for becoming vice president. Burr returned to New York in 1804 during his first term and turned his attention to entering the race for governor. He suffered an embarrassing defeat against a relatively unknown candidate and placed much of the blame at Hamilton's feet. Tensions rose, and events came to a head that spring when the Albany Register published an excerpt of a letter that included a reference to remarks in which Hamilton referred to Burr as a, quote, dangerous man, unquote, who couldn't be trusted. For Burr, it was the last straw, and over the next several months, 
the two exchanged increasingly heated letters in which Byrd demanded Hamilton recant his accusation. Hamilton refused. Burr saw no option other than to defend his honor and issue a challenge to a duel. Hamilton wanted to avoid the duel, but politics left him no choice. He would lose his honor if he admitted to Burr's accusation, which was substantially true. If he refused to duel, the result would be the same. Either way, Hamilton's political career would be over. On the morning of July 11, 1804, Alexander Hamilton, his second, Nathaniel Pendleton, and a doctor, Dr. David Hosack, rode to Weehawken, New Jersey. Aaron Burr and his second, W.P. Van Ness, had already arrived. Underbrush had been cleared to provide room for the dueling ground. The two men walked off their paces as their seconds turned away. The two men's fire was almost simultaneous. Hamilton shot wide of Burr, hitting a nearby tree. Hamilton wrote days before that he had planned to do this before the duel. I have resolved, wrote Hamilton, to reserve and throw away my first fire, and I have thoughts of even reserving my second fire. According to Hamilton's second, Nathaniel Pendleton, Hamilton verbally confirmed this statement moments before the duel. Although Hamilton fired to miss, Burr did not. The fatal large-caliber lead ball struck Hamilton in the abdomen, causing considerable damage to internal organs, and finally lodged itself in his first or second lumbar vertebra. Hamilton's doctor, David Hosack, rushed to his side and recorded the details of the moment. When called to him upon his receiving the fatal wound, I found him half-sitting on the ground, supported in the arms of Mr. Pendleton. His countenance of death I shall never forget. He had at that instant just the strength to say, This is a mortal wound, doctor. The men then scrambled, realizing their only chance to save Hamilton was to get him back across the Hudson River. William Bayard, Jr., a prominent New York banker, met Hamilton's boat at the dock and transported the mortally wounded founding father to his home at 82 Jane Street in what is now Greenwich Village. Eliza and the children, who were eight miles north at the Grange, were summoned. They arrived at the Bayard House in time for a final farewell. Also called was Protestant Episcopal Bishop Benjamin Moore, who administered Holy Communion to Hamilton. The bishop condemned the duel and asked if Hamilton was disposed to live in love and charity with all men. Hamilton, Bishop Moore wrote, lifted his hands and said, With the utmost sincerity of heart, I can answer those questions in the affirmative and have no ill will against Colonel Burr. I met him with a fixed resolution to do him no harm. I forgive all that happened. Hamilton died the following afternoon of July 12, 1804. 
Burr remained in New York City for a few days following the duel, expecting a hero's welcome for defending his honor. Instead, the outpouring of public grief over Hamilton's death shocked him. Burr also heard that New York law enforcement was looking for a way to charge him with murder, even though the shooting occurred in New Jersey. Sensing that his situation in New York City was untenable, Burr fled to New Jersey and eventually to Philadelphia, where he sought refuge for a time with his old friend, Charles Biddle. Although he moved further south to South Carolina, he returned to Washington, D.C. in 1805 to finish his vice presidential term. Burr then remained a political outcast until he died in 1836. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining me. Be with us next time as we explore more stories of untold heroes and little-known history. And don't forget to click that subscribe button to be notified of future episodes. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.